ETFs with the X Factor, how pension income stacks up against buy-to-let and this month's markets in your money. You're listening to The Personal Finance Show with me, Kate Bealey. Now, you've heard of famous value investors and you might have heard of investment strategies like momentum or growth, but you'll probably be less familiar with the passive funds that use those strategies. So this week, I've taken a look at low-cost factor ETFs, the weight stocks in an index based on characteristics like value or growth, which can be mainstream benchmarks. But just how useful are they? And should you be using factors in your own portfolios? So I'm joined by Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killick & Co. to discuss this theme investing. Um, so Rachel, how do you think investors should use strategies like momentum and growth? Should they use them at all? Yeah, definitely. So I would say that growth is a very important part of anyone's portfolio. It is a very typical and important investment strategy. It just means investing investing in companies that do have very high rates of growth. So typically that would be um, technology stocks, maybe even healthcare stocks. Um, so I would definitely include growth stocks in anyone's portfolio. Momentum, on the other hand, is a bit more divisive. It is a bit more difficult to define. For me, I think it is almost akin to gambling in some ways because you are just picking stocks whose prices have accelerated in one way or another in recent times and just buying into those stocks or shorting those stocks. And I think that that is a bit risky. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe let's talk about some of the most common ones. So um, momentum and and growth, key ones. Um, What are the other ones? Value investing, I think, is another key type of investing that people use and I think most people would be quite familiar with. That's when you are really analysing the fundamentals of a company and deciding whether or not you think the stock of that company is undervalued. Okay, and some of the other ones I had a look at um, also include quality um, and that's things like including companies with good balance sheets, good cash flow, um, which might withstand downturns. And there are a series of others as well, including things like low volatility. Um, But those ones we've just mentioned are the key ones, aren't they? So um, when you're thinking about active fund managers, do these kind of themes or these investment styles come into your decision making? Definitely. Yeah, they're also important. So whenever we pick a fund for a client, we always want to know the style of that particular fund manager. So you want to know exactly how how they pick their stocks. If you're buying a portfolio of funds, you want to have a range of different styles in there so the client is adequately diversified. But normally, I think you would find that most fund managers would focus on all of these themes to some extent. And what are different points in the cycle? Or Or even at the same point. So some stocks, you could argue, could be considered to be growth and also value. I mean, healthcare stocks, for example, they do have good growth rates, but then you could also argue that some of them look undervalued in relation to the market. Okay, well, let's focus on value for a minute, because I think that's one of the most kind of commonly known factors, I guess. Um, Who are some classic value active fund managers? Warren Buffett's got to be the most famous one. Okay, and and why is he a value manager? What what is it about his stock picking? So he really analyses everything about a company before he goes ahead and buys it. So he looks at the assets, the balance sheet, the cash flow, and he decides exactly how much he thinks that company should be worth. And then he compares that to the current market capitalization of that stock. And if the company is worth more than the current market cap, he buys it. Okay, so when do value stocks tend to outperform? What kind of markets do you find they do best in? They do tend to be seen as slightly less risky stocks. So, for example, there would be things like financials, um, oil and mining stocks. Often they would be types of companies that do have 
physical assets. So it's much easier to measure the value of these types of companies. And for that reason, people do tend to feel a bit more comfortable with them. And therefore, they are more likely to buy them in times of financial distress. So when the markets are falling, I think these stocks would probably fall less than the wider market. OK, that's that's interesting, because I think on the ETF side, um, they seem to do better when, in fact, you have very risk on risk hungry markets. Um, so it will be cyclical things like, like banking and mining, which which we've seen rally um, quite hard when economic times are quite good. So do you think is that a difference between um, maybe buying a value ETF and buying a value fund manager? I think it really depends what you think a value company is. Okay, I mean, so it's, very, it's about being very clear on the definition of value. Yeah, there I isn't mean, it, just one. It could really apply to any sector. So you're really just looking at companies that you think are undervalued. So those companies, they could even fall into, into technology. So mm. I would refer to them as things like energy and mining. And I think because energy and mining have been quite out of favour over the last few years, the stock prices have come down a lot. So that has made those companies value investments, in my view. Okay, that's, that's historically, interesting. Historically, those companies might have grown a lot and therefore they might not have been considered to be value investments in the past. Okay, so so what kind of stocks might you get in a growth-focused, um, either growth-focused index or growth-focused manager so anything where the annual profits are growing at a particularly fast rate. So the classic one is technology. So ETFs or funds that focus on the fan companies. So for example, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google. Those are really the companies that have grown the most and outperformed the most over the last couple of years. So any kind of growth focused ETF or fund, I think would be quite heavily overweight in those types of stocks. Okay. And so it's momentum and growth strategies. Um, those ETFs certainly on a global basis, on a US and European basis, have performed the most strongly when compared both to um, broader benchmarks like the MSCI World, for example. Um, and also against value-focused ETFs and um, and others. So why is that? Is that because we've seen a big tech rally? Yeah, I think value versus growth, those two types of investing do tend to fall in and out of favour. So over the last few years, technology and growth investments have been very much in favour. That's what the press has been covering and that's what people have wanted to buy. We are expecting technology, technology and the internet to take over everything. So therefore, investors are looking at that and buying into all these growth stocks. And to some extent, the old value stocks have been a bit left behind. So I think mining stocks and oil stocks have been a bit neglected and therefore those stock prices have fallen. Okay. So when it comes to how you actually approach um, investing in either passives or actives with factors, do you buy and hold managers' funds regardless of style or do you kind of try and switch in and out of them as their style becomes more or less in favour? We would never be heavily trading funds. So when we buy a fund, we do aim to hold it for the long term. But if there did come a time when we thought either growth or value investing was particularly in favour at the moment, we might slightly skew someone's portfolio to hold more of the types of managers or factor ETFs that focused on that. Okay. And do you think people should approach um, ETFs in this space differently to the way they would think about an active manager? We would tend to say that you should hold, buy and hold active fund managers, give them a chance to outperform. Um, Does the same apply to a factor ETF or might you use that more tactically? I suppose you could argue that an active fund manager 
does have the ability to take into account what's happening with the market and they have got the ability to change their strategy. So therefore, I would be more likely to hold that for longer. But then I would use the phrase, what's important is time in the market rather than timing the market. So the people who do make the best investment returns are people who just buy investments and hold them for the long term. And that does include even completely passive ETFs with no factors. So an ETF that does include factors, I think I would also be likely to hold that for the long term. Okay, also because you're obviously incurring trading costs, aren't you, every time you switch a portfolio. So exactly. something to bear in mind. Um, so you mentioned earlier you're a little more sceptical about momentum as, as a concept, as a factor. Um, is timing more difficult with that strategy? It is, yeah, because you're perhaps buying into a stock that's already gone up and you're hoping it will go up more. And I think with momentum investing, you've got to make sure that you you sell out at the right time. Because the same happens on the way down as the way up. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I follow Terry Smith quite closely, who's the manager of the Fund Smith Equity Fund. And he uses something called the greater fools theory. So he says, if you're buying a very expensive stock at a high multiple, you're expecting, well, you'd feel like a fool for buying it. And you would hope that someone would be an even greater fool and buy it off you at a higher price as a later date. Mm, it's interesting because it sounds almost more... Um, like a strategy based on behavioural, uh, well, behavioural economics or more like investor psychology than it is based on a stock fundamental. Yeah, exactly right. So I think we do have some amount of herd trading at the moment. If people see a stock going up or if they see other people buying a stock, they are keen to get involved whether or not they've researched the stock themselves. I think momentum is quite a good starting point for selecting equities. So perhaps you could look at the wider market and see some stocks that have been moving a lot recently, but then look into that further and find out why. If you like the stock after that, then buy it, but don't just buy it purely because it's got momentum. Okay, so just finally, when thinking about how to kind of put these into your portfolio, do some factors work better than others in particular regions? Or would you be tending to take more of a global perspective here? I'd probably use it for different sectors rather than regions. The same factors would work the same in all regions. So, for example, quality companies, companies with good cash flow, companies with good managers, those types of companies should perform well in in all regions. Okay. And in terms of styles that work together, is it worth, for example, putting a growth fund and a value fund in the same portfolio or are you then just really getting the whole market are you kind of balancing things out too much i don't think so at all i would definitely hold both so if you look back over the longer term value styles and growth styles have both performed incredibly well and they do move in and out of favor it's quite difficult to predict when they are going to move in and out of favor so i think it is very important to hold both so it's about having the best fund rather than trying to um time factors and funds completely yeah i'd rather hold a very diversified spread of good investments and hold them for the long term okay great well for some more detail about specific etfs and um, the way that they have performed over time uh, take a look at the magazine this week now later we're going to talk pensions versus property for income in retirement but first how have markets been affecting your money in the past month so we're talking about september now rachel september was actually a fairly muted month across the board wasn't it but um, the best performers in equity terms appear to be US equities and particular smaller companies. So why is that? I think it's largely due to President Trump's um, tax reforms. So when he was elected, he did talk about trying to lower US corporate tax. The US has the highest rate of corporate tax across any of the developed countries. It's currently 38%, which is incredibly high. When you compare it to the UK, we've got 19%. So, you know, ours is nearly half what theirs is. Um, in his election campaign, Trump said he wanted to reduce that 
to 15%. But last week, he gave some more detail about his proposed tax reforms, and he's mentioned reducing it to 20%. So not quite as low as he wanted to go, but still a significant reduction. So that would, if he can get it through, that would be a very good thing for US equities. Okay, and he's talked, hasn't he, as well about repatriating overseas tax or a kind of tax holiday Yeah. So at the moment, we have a lot of global US companies who might, for example, have their headquarters outside of the US to avoid paying rates of US tax on all their earnings. Apple is a classic example. I believe they're headquartered in Ireland. Therefore, they hold a lot of their cash offshore. I think they're famous for having more cash in their bank than the US government. They don't want to take their cash back to the US because the rate of tax is so high. And they've even gone so far as to issue a bond in the US because issuing a bond and paying interest is cheaper than paying to bring back the cash that they already have. Wow. So um, Apple seems like a stock that would benefit from that then. What other US stocks would benefit the most from this tax overhaul or what kind of stocks? The most obvious ones are the technology stocks. So Google, Facebook, those are all companies that do operate on a very international basis and they're all holding a lot of cash offshore. So if they were able to bring that cash back more cheaply, then that would definitely be a benefit for them. Okay. Um, Is this the Trumpflation trade that we heard so much talk about after the election or is this distinct from that? I think it is a part of it. Um, I think Trumpflation was really a phrase that was coined just to just to describe the way that markets went up when President Trump came into power. I think the main part of Trumpflation was really inflation. So a lot of Trump's policies should encourage inflation. Um, For example, he really wants to encourage more spending. He wants to encourage more corporate spending. But there seems to be no kind of concrete policy on that coming through, does there? So is this uh, the one kind of glimmer of hope? (laughs) It is, yeah. So people were hopeful when he was elected. I think that hope did fade. But now he's come back with a more concrete policy. I think perhaps the hope is returning. Okay. so are there any sectors which wouldn't benefit or which we might see kind of take a bit of a turn. One that wouldn't benefit would be the technology because they already make a lot of earnings outside of the US. So they're not paying that high rate of tax on most of their earnings. Energy is one that does pay the high rate of tax on all of its earnings because all of its earnings are kept in the US. So that would be a sector that would benefit the most. Okay, brilliant. Um, So should investors do anything or move any holdings as a result of this or should they wait and see? I would probably wait because so far we haven't seen Trump having really any any success in getting his policies through. If you are more of a risky investor, perhaps you could move more into stocks that you think would benefit from this tax cut. But then if he doesn't manage to get this through, you could lose out. So I'd prefer to wait and see. Okay. Also staying in the US, um, the Fed has started tapering QE, hasn't it? Yes. Um, So we've heard a lot of talk about it, but what does it mean for investments and, and what's actually happening? So the the Federal Reserve has spent years buying huge amounts of government and corporate bonds. Um, They've had those bonds sat on their balance sheet for several years now. And when those bonds pay interest, they have been reinvesting that interest back into more bonds. They've just announced they're now going to stop investing that interest into more bonds. Therefore, demand for bonds in the US will fall. And we would expect bond yields to go higher as a result of that. Okay, where else do you think the impact will likely be felt in markets? Well, if bond yields are going higher... Um, that means that any sort of asset that doesn't pay an income becomes relatively less attractive. Gold is a classic example. So since they made that announcement, the price of gold has actually come down. Yeah, and that's interesting because, in fact, gold funds have been among the very worst performers over the month. Do you think that's Mm. a direct relationship to the Fed's actions there? 
I think it is, yeah, because gold obviously doesn't pay an income. But actually, I think it is quite surprising that the price of gold has stayed so low because there is so much political tension at the moment. We've got the North Korean situation. Normally, the price of gold goes up when people are scared, but at the moment, the price seems to be staying quite low. Interesting. Do, do you think then we might see that spike if we have any more kind of uh, rumblings over North Korea? And I think it's very likely. Yeah, I think if people did become genuinely concerned about military action in North Korea, I think, yes, the price of gold would rise. OK. Also, I guess, related to the US, emerging markets performed very badly in September mm-hmm. or relatively badly. Um, generally speaking, in the past, when the US has, has tapered back on kind of easy money policies, it's been bad news for emerging markets. We obviously had the, the taper tantrum in 2000. 13 when they really fell um, as a result of um, action by the US Federal Reserve. Is the situation the same now? Would, you know, are we seeing emerging markets fall because the US is tapering? I think that is the reason. Um, but actually, I think the concerns are overdone. So I think back in the 90s, emerging markets did have a huge amount of debt that was denominated in dollars. When the dollar rose in value, that caused the Asian financial crisis. So I think people are still quite wary about a strong dollar harming emerging markets. I think these days the amount of dollar-denominated debt held in emerging markets is much less. So I think the effect on them of a high dollar would be less than it was before. And also I think the Fed is very aware that raising interest rates and therefore spiking the dollar would be negative for emerging markets. So they are being careful about that. Mm, And I mean, a a lot has changed, hasn't it, in emerging markets since then. We've had some really strong growth coming through on a fundamental basis in many of those countries and markets. Uh, Does that make now a good time to be investing in emerging markets? Yeah, I really think it does. So at the moment, we are moving money into emerging markets. I think the regulation there has improved. And also the rates of growth that you can get over there are still far above what you can get from any developed economy. So China and India, for example, their economies are growing at over 6% per year. Compare that to the UK, where we're getting 2%. I think having a bit of money in emerging markets is almost a no-brainer. And and how do you approach that? Do you do you look for funds with big chunks in China and India? Yes, we do. So we would look for specific emerging economy funds. We wouldn't buy individual stocks really in emerging markets because it's very difficult for us to read the annual reports because largely they're not written in English. So we prefer to use a fund manager who has a real expertise in that region. Okay. Um, staying with interest rates, Mark Carney, um, Governor of the Bank of England, has also made some comments in September which point to uh, a fairly likely interest rate on the horizon in the UK too. How, how likely do you think that is? I do wonder if he just if he's just talking about this a lot to make people expect it and to make them trade accordingly. So that in itself has made the pound go higher. Uh, recently in the UK, inflation has spiked up. That's because the pound has been so weak and we're such a big importer. So we've had a lot of imported inflation. If Carney can take any action just to make the pound go higher, that will lessen inflation over here. So I do think perhaps that's why he's done it. I don't think he would raise rates significantly or quickly in in the UK at the moment. There's too much uncertainty. Mm. Um, so, I mean, where would that impact if he did? And does that mean that all of it is kind of priced into markets now any any likely rate rise because there has been so much talk of it? I don't think so, no. I think people do doubt that he will do it. Um, there is perhaps a small chance that he might put the rate up to 0.5% again. That's where it was until the referendum. But going any higher than that in the short term when we've got so much uncertainty over Brexit, I really don't think he will. OK. Just looking at other things which, which underperformed in September, inflation-linked bonds did quite badly. Mm-hmm. Why is that? 
I think partly because inflation in the UK is slightly below expectations and also because of what Carney's done. So he's caused the pound to go higher. That will lower imported inflation here in the UK. If inflation is lower here, that means the payout on inflation-linked bonds will be lower. Okay, and they're also looking pretty expensive, aren't they? Does that mean that people have been put off, do you think? I think at the moment, the real yield on a lot of inflation-linked bonds is negative. Right after the referendum, when sterling fell, people really piled into inflation-linked bonds. So I think since then, they have been quite expensive. Okay. Um, And just finally, something that did do well. We had oil doing very well, oil and energy funds um, hitting a high. And is that because of the oil price? What's happened there? I think it's primarily because we've had OPEC talking about further supply cuts. So that would push the price of oil higher. And also we've got concerns about a hurricane hitting the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of oil is produced there. And already I think some of the major oil producers are shutting rigs while the hurricane comes in. So I think that will also put some pressure on oil supply. Okay, so with bearing all of that in mind, where would you be investing now? Where are you investing now? Emerging markets. We are making a conscious effort to move more money towards emerging markets. I think they do look very attractive. I think the stock valuations over there are lower than the ones in the UK. And also the growth rates are much higher. Also Europe as well. I think the valuations in Europe do look quite attractive. All right. Thank you very much, Rachel. Now, finally, property and pensions, they both generate income in retirement. But how do they compare to each other? And how does new legislation on buy-to-let impact its appeal? I'm joined now by personal finance writer Emma Adjaman to discuss it. So, Emma, buy-to-let has been very popular, hasn't it? And many investors have done very well out of it. Yes, that's right. I mean, property is a tangible asset, so it makes it easy for people to relate to. And of course, over the last couple of decades, the property market has been very buoyant, with house prices having climbed dramatically, which means that capital returns have also been good. As well as that, landlords also benefit from the rental income they receive from paying tenants. So you can understand why it has been such an attractive area. Okay, but there have been some recent changes, haven't there, in buy-to-let, which have made it less attractive. What are they? Yes, there have been. So several tax changes, which could have the potential to dampen future returns. Um, Since last April, investors purchasing a property that's not their only home will have to pay an extra 3% in stamp duty. And the amounts that landlords can claim in tax relief on their finance costs, which would include things like mortgage interest, have also been reduced. So previously, um, top-rated taxpayers could claim tax relief for 45% on all their finance costs. But by 2020, this will fall to the basic rate of 20%. And up until then, it's been gradually reduced until we get to that point. Okay, but people are still keen on it, aren't they? Can, can you still do well out of buy-to-let? Yes, but I mean, the new changes will will hurt prospective landlords, people who might have been considering buy-to-let for the first time, um, potentially to fund retirement, for example. But for more experienced landlords who are mortgage-free and maybe don't have any plans to buy any new properties, the changes won't have any effect. And actually, they could be positive because landlords will be able to put up rents as a result of the new changes. The sector as a whole, rents are likely to increase. So this could be a good opportunity to do that. Okay, so for anyone already in it, Mm. kind of good news then. So what about pensions then? How does pension income compare to to buy-to-let in terms of how people fund their retirement? Well, the the planners, financial planners we spoke to, really were much more in favour of pensions as a way of um, generating income and retirement than buy-to-let. And they were quite sort of strongly warning against people who thinking about taking money from their pension to put into a buy-to-let property. And the reasons they were so in favour of pensions was because um, they're much more tax efficient than investing in property. So when you invest in a pension, you get tax relief on the way in as you're making 
and contributions. Your money also grows for your tax within the pension and you can withdraw up to 25% of your pot tax-free when you take it out. Also, if you want to leave a pension as a legacy, it's much more tax efficient to do so. In comparison, property, you'll have to pay capital gains tax if you sell a property. You'll have to pay income tax on the rental income you receive. And if you want to pass it on, you're much more likely to be affected by inheritance tax. Um, so those are all reasons why they were much more in favour of pensions. Mm. And so on the flip side, though, are there drawbacks to pension versus buy-to-let in terms of income? Um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, nothing is perfect. Um, and pensions do have some drawbacks. One of the ones is that they have age restrictions attached to them. So normally you can only access your pension from age 55, which is unhelpful if you're in the fortunate position of being able to retire before then. And the other thing is that pensions are subject to potential political change, which means that in the future there could be some reductions to the benefits they offer. And that's something for investors to be aware of. Okay, well, thanks very much, Emma. And thanks, Rachel. That's all we've got time for this week. So everything we've talked about, pick up the magazine. And otherwise, catch us again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.